the Grok Science Show. So I'd like to start off the show by telling you a story about when I was a little girl. At that time, I assumed that I would live forever, at least as long as I avoided getting hit by a bus or getting sucked into a tornado. And I clearly remember the day my father broke the news to me, that everyone I knew, including myself, someday will die. When he told me that, I ran screaming down the hallway to my bedroom, and I was never really quite the same after that. And, um, you know, I'm definitely not the only one who finds the prospect of death to be, well, to put it mildly, a little frightening. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, which is one of the first literary works dating back to at least to the 22nd century BC, Gilgamesh seeks to become immortal. And there's so many other examples of people seeking youth and immortality, like, for example, um, medieval alchemists searching for the sorcerer's stone, um, Herodotus describing a fountain with a special kind of water that imparts longevity, which is an early account of the Ponce de Leon's fountain of youth, golden apples as a source of immortality in Norse mythology, and of course, Voldemort in the popular Harry Potter series splitting his soul into horcruxes to remain alive forever. Now, not just in mythology, but in the media, there's so many phrases out there that promise health and long life. Avoid carbohydrates, avoid fat, avoid gluten, drink green smoothies, drink red wine, take your fish pills, get some sun, stay out of the sun, eat rice, avoid rice. It's enough to make you want to just give up and eat pizza every single day for dinner. But what's the science behind living a long and healthy life? That's the question that we're going to be asking on today's show. So my guest today has written a book about this, and, um, well, I'll let him introduce it himself. Hi, this is Ted Anton, professor of English at DePaul University uh, in Chicago, uh, and author of The Longevity Seekers, Science, Business, and the Fountain of Youth. So Ted Anton's new book discusses the historical snake oil methods to achieve long life, as well as some of the really exciting scientific advances in this field. As you might imagine, this is a popular but also very political topic as it plays into our collective emotional fear of death. Unsurprisingly, there's been many longevity scams over the ages. So here's one example. In the early 1900s, a German scientist popularized vasectomies as a rejuvenation operation for old men. I asked Dr. Anton where that came from. <laughs> you like that one? That's crazy because Sigmund Freud had it. H.L. Mencken, the greatest cynic of all, that was in the 1920s. 
you know, the 1920s featured some great charlatans. It was, you know, the Jazz Age, um, the you know, one of the many stock bubbles, perhaps the biggest of all. And uh, there was Eugen Steinock in Vienna. He was, uh, you know, proposing um, vasectomies, uh, something to do with testosterone. And uh, another guy in Kansas, um, John Brinkley, who who basically gave rise to the AMA to stop him, he was he was transplanting goats' testicles uh, next to the real ones of farmers, and and everybody uh, believed it. He he made a fortune. He they sent him across the border to Mexico. He was the original sort of radio doctor, and he he started a border blasting radio station. I don't know if you've heard of them. That they were very critical, the Mexican border blasters in the rise of rock and roll. They were the ones who first played the blues from uh, the South. Uh, so, so in fact, like you'll hear his radio station in a in a Doors song. Um, but anyway, um, that's where it was the 20s. It was testosterone, and it was one of many waves of charlatans uh, that uh, you know this field has. Uh, invoked. Everybody wants to live longer. Everybody wants to uh, live healthy in old age. I love these snake oil charlatan type stories, but well, this is a science show. So the question is, when did the study of longevity become scientific? Well, this leads us to the study of caloric restriction, which was initiated by a veterinarian during the Great Depression. Right, so that's another two um, visionary uh, scientists. It's Clive McKay at Cornell. He, in the basically in the Depression, he he is uh, a veterinarian and a nutritionist, and he finds, contrary to all expectation, if you cut the feed of rats by thirty percent, you extend their lifespan forty percent. And nobody really pays attention to him. Nobody wants to starve. Uh, until the 1960s, and an immunologist in California, Roy Walford, uh, he picked up on it. He he writes a book, Maximum Lifespan, a pop book that becomes a big hit. Uh, he uh, you know has people like Timothy Leary in, you know visiting his lab, and um, and it takes off. And now there's a caloric restriction society. And uh, the the funny thing is, Clyde McKay died at 69, and Walford. <laughs> at 74, so uh, a lot of the longevity gurus die young. Hmm, a lot of the longevity gurus die young? I have to say, not too promising, but I can tell you from personal experience that it's certainly difficult to restrict one's calories. So we have these caloric restriction studies going on during the Great Depression and beyond, but scientific studies of longevity really took off thanks to the humble labworm, or nematodes. Now, these worms might not look like much, but they're an incredibly important genetic model organism used to study molecular, developmental, and evolutionary biology. And they've even been to the space station. But how do they help us understand longevity? The first step was a, a small government program uh, that uh, at the National Institute on Aging, and it was uh, asking researchers to look at uh, lifespan in animals because researchers didn't want to do it. And it was uh, pretty much an, uh, uh, a scientist from Wisconsin, Michael Klass, who first surmised, you know, there, there are genes that shorten lifespan. There must be genes that lengthen lifespan, and the worm lives only two weeks. And uh, he just started screening for mutants. That was the first step. 
and he found a few, and he, he really didn't believe in them. And then Tom Johnson at Colorado took, uh, he was a friend of Michael Class, and, and uh, he took those worms, he, he actually was in California when he did this work, and he looked for a gene. He surmised perhaps, you know, it's like Mendel, maybe there's a single gene. And he, uh, with an undergraduate, found just such a gene. He, he couldn't believe it. But he didn't, he didn't really believe in it either. Um, and it was Cynthia Kenyon, pretty much. She heard Tom Johnson speak at Lake Arrowhead in California, and it just touched something deep within her. She, she was a, a real high-powered uh, gen, worm geneticist who already had, had made a, a, a fascinating discovery about the enhancer trap, a, a technique. And uh, it, just, it just grabbed her, and she ran with it. And uh, she's the one who found... Uh, a single mutant that du it doubled their lifespan, it, uh, then three times, then six times, and ultimately she had lengthened healthful life tenfold. And then the next step was uh, in 97, Gary Rovkin at Harvard found it was an insulin gene. So that's, that's when the thing exploded, because nobody even knew the worm had insulin in it. And of course, that was humans, and that was, uh, you know, possibility of a drug, and uh, and everybody was interested now to begin with because Cynthia Kenyon, unlike the other two first uh, scientists, she just ran with it. She was proselytizing. She's a great speaker. She 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 was always on me to uh, finish my book and come visit her lab. So Cynthia Kenyon identified a gene that, when manipulated, could extend a nematode's lifespan by tenfold, which is incredible. And this gene was later found to be involved in the insulin pathway. So what is this gene, and how does it work to increase lifespan? So there's, um, this is actually a gene called DAF2 or FOXO in humans. So humans have the same gene, and it's been found in uh, human centenarians, a mutation that mirrors the worm uh, gene and mice and flies and pretty much across the board. And insulin, uh, of course, is really critical. It's the, um, the gas pedal and uh, glucose is the gas. It's, uh, and it um, is part of the diabetes epidemic, huge epidemic. And basically, you want to be insulin sensitive. You want to have less of it floating around in your uh, system. So this is a gene that codes for the receptor. There's a, a, a catcher's mitt on a cell wall. It's the insulin gene receptor. And um, essentially it downgrades uh, the receptiveness uh, to the hormone. And so basically if you, you turn down insulin signaling a little bit, you extend healthful life a lot. So in worms, if you decrease insulin signaling a bit, you extend life a lot. Dr. Anton mentioned that a mutation in a gene in the insulin pathway, the gene called FOXO, is associated with human centenarians. So a centenarian is someone who lives to 100 years or beyond. And there are some labs who study these long-lived people to understand what it is about them, both in terms of their habits and their genes, that makes them live for such a long time. So what have they discovered? Now, uh, the, the person I'm most interested in is near Barzilai at uh, um, Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, who, who was one of the first researchers with Ashkenazi Jews who live a long time, like his, his mother-in-law. And he's found a couple of mechanisms, one of which is the uh, human version of that worm insulin gene. 
They are also very interested in um, mitochondrial peptides. That's a, another, a signaler from the energy uh, factories in the cell. Mitochondria ha- are very interesting because, you know, they generate the oxidative, the free radicals. That's such a pop uh, culture interest for aging. Uh, so he's found about four mechanisms, of which one is the insulin uh, gene pathway. Uh, he started his own company, too, to, to try and apply some of his discoveries t- um, toward uh, some kind of, uh, you know, a drug to make. It's not to make us live longer, they'll all say. It's to make us healthy until we pass away, to, to live a good life and then die peacefully, much like that's how a centenarian ages and, and passes away. So all this talk about centenarians and genes got me wondering... How much of my aging is actually under my control? That's a great question. Now, if you're a centenarian, if your grandma lived to 100, probably quite a bit because uh, they have a gene and you could smoke, drink, lie on the couch, do whatever you want. Uh, but for the rest of us, for most of us, uh, you know, the estimate I hear is uh, 25%, 30%. Nobody quite can say. It, it's a lot more complicated in humans than in uh, worms and mice, unfortunately. That's been the big, that's been the big uh, stumbling block. Well, longevity is much more complex in humans compared to flies, but what about in other long-lived animals like parrots, bats, and the naked mole rat? And why does longevity evolve in some species and not in others? I've always heard that there's no selection pressure, evolutionarily speaking, in living longer since your past reproductive age. So to address these questions, I asked Dr. Anton to tell me a bit about the evolution of longevity. That's a great point, and that to me is probably the most convincing uh, aspect of this whole story, that and the humans. Maybe we'll talk about them, but um, yeah. In uh, strict uh, Darwinian natural selection, once an organism reproduces, it's no, there's no effect whatsoever. Uh, there's no um, payoff to have a gene live longer, have a body live longer. But it turns out that longevity is present all the time in the wild, and it evolves very quickly, and it's passed on. And um, so anything that flies, uh, you know, especially if you're smart and you fly like a parrot, uh, they live a long time. Um, uh, bats, for example, as compared to mice, bats live 30 years, 40 years, uh, very similar to mice genetically. Mice only live two. Uh, there are some species that do reproduce until they, they die that are very long-lived. That would be the counter to the idea that uh, evolution doesn't care. Uh, there's a, a one that's attracted a ton of interest, this obscure naked mole rat in uh, Africa. And they, they, they live to 100 in human years, 30 in rat years. And uh, they reproduce until they die, and they never get cancer. They, uh, they get a ton of oxidative stress, so they have a ton of free radicals. They, they, you know, they should be sick as heck. And, and, and they're, they're going strong, and they're also very socially um, complex. Uh, the, the males care for the young, the pups. So everybody's interested in them. Uh, bowhead whales live to 210 years. Uh, you, we all know about Joshua trees, sequoias. A lot of uh, Arctic seabirds, um, uh, there's a, a haunting image of um, an Arctic 
seabird outliving its Scottish researcher, George Dunnett. Um, they have a lot of resistance, self-stress resistance. So it turns out that that is a little more complicated than Darwin thought. And in fact, longevity evolves all the time in the wild, and it's passed down to offspring. So it turns out that longevity may have evolved many times independently in crazy species like the naked mole rat. But let's get back to the question of human longevity, or how can humans live longer, healthier lives? As I've mentioned earlier, it's a very political subject, and one example that really highlights the politics of science is the rise and fall of resveratrol, the compound found in red wine. So first, let's hear about the rise. So in 2003, a young Harvard uh, scientist, David Sinclair, and an older plant expert in Philadelphia, Conrad Howitz, teamed up, and they made probably the single most popular explosive discovery of all. They showed, or thought they showed, that resveratrol triggered an enzyme called SIRT1. That's a human enzyme which had been discovered, um, or its longevity effect had been discovered uh, in uh, Sinclair's mentor's lab at MIT. And this exploded. This was on Oprah and 60 Minutes and Barbara Walters and um, generated a huge amount of interest. A year later, it's shown that uh, resveratrol can make these grossly obese mice live, uh, rather run a kilometer faster than normal mi or obese mice without it. And he, Sinclair starts a company with a young, uh, one of the best uh, venture capitalists, MDs, PhDs in, in Cambridge, called Sertris. And they, they cut out Conrad Howitz. He wasn't involved anymore, even though he had made the original discovery. And they generate a ton of money and a ton of interest because anybody who had extra money, I mean, that's probably what you would invest in. Peter Lynch of Merrill Lynch. John Henry, owner of the Boston Red Sox, also a, a native Illinoisan. And um, uh, they have a string of publications, but, but there's a lot of questions about the publications. It wasn't clear how much resveratrol was triggering the enzyme. It wasn't clear how important the enzyme is in uh, longevity. And it wasn't clear if, as they claimed, this was also acting as a node in the caloric restriction pathway. But nobody cared because cause it's a great story. It's the perfect story. And uh, in 2008, they convinced uh, GlaxoSmithKline, the top, one of the top pharmaceutical companies in the world, to make the biggest investment in biotech ever, $720 million, right on the eve of you know, the economic collapse. Okay, so you might see where this story is going. So we have a huge investment on the eve of the economic crisis. But that's not all that went wrong. Some of the initial resveratrol experiments couldn't be replicated. So this combination of financial plus scientific issues contributed to the fall of resveratrol. And uh, since that time, there's been a lot of question, a lot of difficulty in repeating the experiment. Um, uh, they, it was been shown definitively that the original experiment was a false positive. It was triggering their um, uh, fluorescent tag that was um, used to, to show activation of the enzyme. Although most recently, um, they did uh, replace that fluorescent tag with two very important proteins, 
uh, one of which is found in the human centenarians, and show that resveratrol or a couple of mimetics at a correct dose will uh, modify the enzyme's uh, activity toward those proteins. Then two days later, the GlaxoSmithKline closed down the company. So after this initial rise and fall of resveratrol, it continues to hold promise as a potential longevity drug, but the politics have somewhat clouded the science. As a result, resveratrol seems to be moving up and down in this continuous cycle of rising and falling in terms of its scientific importance and its economic importance. You, you, you can follow it almost like um, a box score in a baseball season. Uh, one day they're up, one day they're down. Or like stock prices, because, you know, in a sense, that's what it became. It became almost like a type of capital and business, and it, it veered away from science was, was the criticism. When you, when you invest $720 million, as one scientist told me, you know, you may get um, counter results, but you're sure as hell not going to tell anybody. Okay, so given the long history of longevity frauds, and the politics behind the discovery of resveratrol, what should we believe? Nobody wants to be fooled by a scam. Nobody wants to lose their money. So what can we do to stay informed? Well, I would treat it, you know, science, the science like you do politics. You know, I, I, it's taught me that. You ha or, or business, and, and then somebody who's trying to get you to invest in something and you have to do your research and your diligence and it's really fascinating all this stuff is now on the web um, uh, you know there's a website from the government clinicaltrials.gov where you can put in any one of these compounds we mentioned and see just how many studies there are I mean if you do that you'll see there's 1100 for the insulin pathway 1,400 clinical trials for something we haven't mentioned, an Easter Island compound called rapamycin, and only about 30 very, very tiny early-stage studies for anything related to resveratrol. So there are ways to learn about the studies behind longevity drugs. So the goal of these researchers is not to figure out how to make us live forever, or even really how to make us live substantially longer. Their goal is instead to ensure that we maintain good health as we age. So if they succeed at this, what effect will this have on our society and on our healthcare system? Well, I, I spent a chapter on that. Um, it's huge. I mean, it's happening whether or not we expect it. Uh, we are living longer. The number of centenarians is, is going to skyrocket. It's uh, the fastest growing demographic group. I think that there's a, a great promise. There's a promise of a dividend, a longevity dividend, which uh, um, it's quite possible the Obama administration is going to uh, come out with a, a major uh, research initiative to what good you know having older people does for the world. But there's also uh, the opposite, <laughs> sort of apocalyptic vision, um, a clash of generations, and. Um, I think we're going to have to tweak our entitlements. Everybody now accepts that. Uh, you know, they were made in the 30s. They're highly successful. Social Security and Medicare, great programs. Probably you're going to have to raise the cap, you know, so that the rich who are making much more money now than they did then will will have to con con keep contributing to those two programs uh, and, and limit some of their um, uh, benefits from those programs. But 
uh, you know, we can do it. Uh, and in fact, um, if one of these discoveries leads to a drug, which I do believe will happen in the you know, next 15 to 20 years, uh, you know, that would be great because it's all about remaining healthy as you age. Okay, yes, fine. It's about being healthy as you age. But I still had to ask, what can I do to live longer? <laughs> well, um, we could, uh, you know, I, uh, Kenyon is a big proponent of the Atkins diet or the South Beach diet. Uh, a lot of protein, not a lot of carbs. She did notice, uh, you know, that glucose will age the, uh, the lab animals very fast. So that's, that's an element. Exercise is great. That is triggering some of these same uh, proteins um, as appear in these centenarians. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's what you knew all along, um, but except maybe there's a little more scientific basis for it. Well, on that note, it's time to end the show. Thanks for listening, and if you'd like to hear more, check out our website at grox.net. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, the Public Radio Exchange, iTunes, and archive.org, so look for us there as well. From everyone here at the Grok Science Show, including Charles Lee, Frank Ling, and Forrest Goulden, I'm Joanna Rowell. Live long and prosper, but don't forget to keep on grokkin'.